I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, all right, this is, uh, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, we are sitting down with Naomi Richter, the director of care at Greenstone. Um, and Naomi brings her knowledge and expertise from her designation as a registered practical nurse and extensive experience in residential treatment settings. Um, and the reason I'm so excited about this is because, Naomi, uh, not only are you doing really important work, but you you have... Um, you have a history within the work that you're doing that, that I think, you know, <clears throat> allows you to bring a pretty interesting perspective to said work. Um, if, if, uh, if you would be so kind, I'm going to hand the mic over to you to uh, give yourself a, a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and um, maybe a little bit of insight how you came into the work that you're doing and also what is, what is Greenstone? Um, yeah, so I work for uh, Greenstone Center for Recovery. Um, we recently rebranded. We were uh, Greenstone Muskoka previously. Um, we are an addiction uh, treatment center. Um, I try to move away from the word residential. We are inpatient. Um, and I came to be here. I'm fairly local to the area. Uh, the facility is in Bala, and I <laughs> reign from the small town of Perry Sound. Um, I worked as a um, RPN in long-term care for a number of years, um, but I also identify as being a person in recovery. Um, so I had a battle with alcoholism and um, opiate use and was in a position um, where my work was not appropriately supporting me in my lifestyle and the changes that need to happen. Um, and so I ended up leaving my full-time um, nursing gig in long-term care and started at an entry-level position at Greenstone. Um, and that was uh, just over three years ago. And I've um, moved a number of times in my position, um, just sort of as I have grown and developed here and they've been able to see my capabilities. Um, and yeah, so I started an entry-level position. I'm working as the director of care now, managing the nursing department. I have a say in uh, some of the programming that happens here and just implementing change Amazing. I, I, um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I feel like there's so many different directions we can take this and, um, uh, considering that this is, this episode is dropping on a Wednesday. I, I really want to dive into, um, you know, your, your knowledge about, um, certain things like, like, you know, uh, access to services and, and, you know, your thoughts on how, um, mental health and addictions is being handled in the, the country, um, we just recently had a conversation with Carolyn Bennett, who is the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, and it was kind of an eye-opening opening conversation for us. Um, 
especially following that conversation up with somebody who um, is is pretty high up in in managing a lot of like social workers in Canada. But before we get into all that stuff, um, I'm I'm really curious to kind of get the the lowdown on your own personal story and your own personal history with addictions. Um, is when, like, when did this, when did that all start for you? And, and was that, was that sort of happening around the same time that you were doing work in long-term care or was this before your career in, in, um, nursing, I guess? Um, so I would say that I probably have always been an addict, um, you know, identifying when addiction came in and and when I was able to have an awareness of it are sort of two different things. Um, you know, I had my first suicide attempt at 17 years old, um, got a history of mental health issues as well. And my disease progressed over time slowly. Um, so, you know, as a teenager, I used um, recreationally. Um, there was a period of time from sort of 17 to 18 where there was a lot of experimentation. Um, and I settled into the relationship that I'm actually in now when I was 18 years old. So I became domesticated very quickly and it wasn't, you know, party life and I wasn't at the bar and I wasn't, you know, doing all of those things. And so it was very easy for me to sort of adapt into, you know, a regular day in, day out routine. Um, as I could afford to drink more, I did. Mm. Um, and so it, it sort of, it started to progress. Um, and it was, it was probably about seven years from, from when I like started consuming more regularly to a point where it was identified as being a significant problem. Um, we went out for my 30th birthday and had a really, really good time. There was no incidences, no issues. We were walking home that night. Um, and my partner, my wife, Teresa, she says to me, I could totally not drink now until the, the May 2-4 weekend, which is her birthday. My birthday's in February. And I said, mm. oh yeah, okay, great. Good idea. And then two days later, I went to go to the liquor store and she said, I thought we weren't drinking. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh. Oh, we're actually going to do this. You were serious. <laughs> yeah, right. You were serious about this, right? Um, but I wasn't a daily drinker. Um, so it was very hard to identify my alcoholism. I was a binge drinker. So I drank two mm. or three, sometimes four nights a week, but typically half of the time I was drinking until I was blacking out. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So from February, um, when we had this discussion about stopping drinking, then I started hiding my drinking. It was the first time I ever had felt the need to hide my consumption. Mm. Um, and I was in hospital um, by April. So from February to April, it progressed quickly enough that I had become suicidal. My medication was not working. Um, and I was formed and um, spent some time in uh, a mental hospital. Mm. So they identified that there may be a drinking problem, which I certainly wasn't aware of. I didn't have an awareness of it. And they said it was affecting my medication. And that's why there was so much instability. Mm. And if I wanted to create stability, I needed to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. Did you, mm. did you realize that, that, that like time from February to April where it, um, started to get progressively worse and worse to the point where you ended up in, in the hospital, um, was like, were you, aware of like the impact that it was having on your life and when you were starting to hide it more did did it become apparent to you that you were you were headed down this path or was it only in hindsight that you realized that it was it, becoming it was only in hindsight yeah because you know my experience with alcoholism and what i what i um experienced growing up and 
how alcoholism was defined to me was very, very different. My stepfather was an alcoholic. Um, my father was an alcoholic. Um, my mother, alcoholic, but not active um, in her alcoholism until actually I left home. Um, so, you know, for me, people, you know, becoming angry, people becoming belligerent, people drinking every day, people not able to hold their responsibilities. And that wasn't me. Mm. You know, I, I, I was taking care of the house. I was taking care of the kids. Um, you know, I was going to school. Our finances were not in trouble. I wasn't an angry person um, when I was drinking. And so I wasn't able to make the connection because in my mind, this is what alcoholism looked like. And mm. that wasn't the experience I was having. Mm. What is a, what do you... Wh- what do you, what's your take on, on what, uh, sort of like draws the line between somebody who has a problem with drinking and somebody who drinks a lot in the context of, I feel like this is like an extremely blurry line for, for a ton of people, including myself. Like I've noticed, I've noticed over the years, like points in my life where I've gone, I've been drinking a little bit too much over the last few months and sort of scaled it back or stopped entirely and then kind of like reintroduced it. And, and that's, and that's been like, you know, a cycle that I went through a few, a few times. And, um, and I feel like a lot of people struggle with that. And I think coming out of the pandemic, Mm. especially, um, you know, I notice a lot of advertisements that are targeted towards people who develop drinking problems over the pandemic when all of a sudden, you know, you're at home all day, all the time and your life is very different. Um, and, uh, and I'm just I'm just curious as as somebody who as somebody who identifies as 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 uh, as somebody who's in recovery and dealt with alcoholism. What is the differentiator? Is it a mental? Is it is it a mental illness differentiator? Is it a um? Yeah. What what, what what's your take on that? So. My take, what I've learned, and what my belief is, is that as an alcoholic, I am somebody who is allergic to alcohol. I have an allergy to alcohol. I have an adverse reaction when it's consumed that is different from a normal person or a non-alcoholic person when they consume. Um, When I consume alcohol, it triggers an allergy that creates the need to consume more alcohol. And somebody who is non-alcoholic will not have that experience. Mm. Somebody who is non-alcoholic will choose whether or not they have their next drink. They will say, I'm feeling this way. I'm not sure, or I might have this responsibility and therefore I should stop now. Mm. With an alcoholic, once the alcohol consumption starts, there is an inability to stop because of the disease and how the disease acts in the body. So I don't even consume chocolate with alcohol in it um, for fear of triggering that allergy. Because if I do, I don't know, I don't, I, all bets are off as to when I'm capable of stopping. Right. That's the first time I've ever heard uh, alcoholism like referred to as sort of an allergy. And that's, that's so fascinating. It yeah. makes a, it totally makes a lot of sense. Well, I was saying to you guys that I had an, uh, like an allergy attack this morning and yeah. it's like, and I just, and there was nothing I could do. You're There's not talking nothing, about you had a beer this morning. I'm not talking. I had a beer. I'm talking, <laughs> I'm talking like a, like a pollen or a dust thing, but in the same, in a similar way, I just went, I'm helpless against whatever the yeah. fuck is going on yeah. in my body right now. Can't help it. Can't yeah. do anything about it. It just, it's just doing its own thing. Yes. And I'm, and I'm, I'm the passenger. And that's right. Naomi, you're saying that too, like even, regardless of like the impact that it has on your like product quote unquote productivity or like any like your relationships or it's just this as soon as you start there's an inability to like regulate or stop doing that yeah so so you know once consumption starts so they say it's a twofold disease so part of it is 
is uh, a mental obsession with consuming alcohol. Mm. And part of it is the physical response that the body has to the allergy. Mm. So, you know, if you can concentrate and do the work that needs to be done on the mental obsession, um, then you can stay in a place where you're safe from consumption. And this is why abstinence in alcoholism is something that is very, very heavily pushed because there's not, for somebody who identifies as an alcoholic, there's not the ability to regulate. Mm. Mm. Um, and so th there's a lot of disbelief around somebody's ability to minimize their alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if, uh, do you, do you think it, so it's, it's really, it's really, I find it really interesting that you put it this way because it makes so much sense to me now. And I had a friend reach out to me a few weeks ago who had mentioned that he, um, felt like he was drinking too much. But he said that like, hey, listen, my relationship's going well, my job is going well, but I'm just drinking every night. And, I, and I, I'm observing that I don't like that I feel like I have to do that. Mm -hmm. And it isn't negatively impacting my life in any observable way, but like, I don't know why I'm, I'm doing this. And I, I didn't really know what to say to him. Um, but when you put it that way, <laughs> I start to think about how I, I'm curious is there, is it possible to drink, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and have that not have an impact on at least like your physical health? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's lots of people who would say that they recommend that, you know, you know, I think for women, it's like seven to 10 drinks in a week with mm, no more yeah. than, than, uh, I, I can't remember if it's two or three at a sitting, you know, there's lots of studies that have been done that show that it can be beneficial to have a drink. Mm. Um, you know, and for a normal person, that's not detrimental. Um, but for somebody who has an allergy to alcohol, the same as they might have an allergy to shellfish or to peanuts, um, there's a chance that by consuming, it actually will lead to my death. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. whether that's, whether that's immediate or whether that's something that's progressive, mm. um, but there, there's an inability to, to, sh to shut that off. Once I start consuming my consciousness, that the, the part of my brain that makes decisions has been shut off. Mm. And the, the reptilian portion of my brain has taken over and it has said, we need to keep consuming. If we don't do this, we will die. Right. It, it's really, it's a huge, huge, huge distortion and very, very challenging um, you know, for a lot of people to get to a place where you say, so long as you don't drink, you're not going to have a problem stopping. Um, it's about not taking that first drink. You know, we say one is too many, a thousand is never enough because once I've had one, there's no saying how many there's going to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have the sense that, uh, um, do you have the sense that there is, that the, that the thing that, that is, that is driving the next drink once the first is consumed is consumed is, does it feel like another person? Do you like, do you feel like it's a, like a, it's kind of like a passenger sort of experience? Like it's not you that's making that choice. Do, do, you, do you know what I mean? Well, there's, there's, I think the biggest problem is there's an inability to understand that you're not the one making the choice. Right, right. Um, you know, there's mm. a lot of shame associated with alcoholism and a lot of people who say, if I was just stronger, if I loved my family more, if I was more involved in my job, I would be able to stop drinking. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of people end up in this place of shame where they're like, I'm not good enough and I can't do it because they don't understand that the addiction is a separate entity mm -hmm. and that they actually don't want to. 
there's a super, super, super great film um, that I would encourage people to check out. And it's called Pleasure Unwoven. And this is um, a, sort of like a docu-film that was done by a gentleman who was um, part of the Air Force, um, who was a doctor with the Air Force who had use issue and sort of the trials and tribulations through his life. But he talks about the pleasure centers in the brain and how the pleasure centers in the brain are affected and, you know, how as the, people are trying to find out more about addiction as a disease and the definition of addiction as a disease, the biggest argument that people pose is that if you put a gun to an alcoholic's head and tell them not to drink, they won't. So under extreme duress, somebody will not pick up the drink. But what cannot be controlled is the fact that they're experiencing the craving. Mm. And the reality is the alcoholic is thinking, I wonder if I can get the drink before they shoot me. I bet they don't have bullets in the gun. I wonder if they'll actually do it mm. because we can't control the craving. Mm. That's the part that shows that this is a disease because mm. under extreme duress, I cannot not crave. Mm -hmm. This, this might be, um, uh, this might not be the greatest transition, but, but I, but I feel like maybe it is connected because I, um, a, it's something that I do not know about at all. Uh, I did like a quick Google of it beforehand and was like, Oh, this, this is way over my head. What is this? Um, but what, what is, um, and this is out of something that you sent to us in terms of uh, some talking points, but, um, and I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, gene sept assay. Oh, yeah. So Genocept is, um, is super cool. Genocept is something that um, has become available in Ontario. I'm not sure if it's something that's Canada wide. Um, the company that we're using is um, Dynacare, which is just a standard laboratories, but there's the ability to do gene testing with a swab um, in your cheek that you send off and it shows you mental health addiction and pain medications that are going to work appropriately in your body or more so it shows you the ones that are yeah. not going to work appropriately in your body Whoa. so where there's been a huge history of mental health people coming in the biggest challenge with mental health is you sort of just have medication thrown at you they're like we'll try this mm -hmm. and yeah. if it doesn't work we'll up it and then if you get side effects from that we'll try a different one and then if that doesn't work maybe we'll try another one the average medication change for somebody with mental health being nine different changes in scripts before Holy something is found words. that's going to be appropriate. After 18 months, more than 50% of people who are being prescribed a medication, if they've not found something that work, will stop taking mental health medication altogether. Mm. Not to mention that wow. there's a lot Jesus. of uh, mental health, mental health um, or mental illness medications that come with side effects that include suicidality. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So what this test does is it actually shows if you're an appropriate based on your genes, whether or not you're an appropriate responder to different medications. So it will show if there's potential risk for weight gain, um, or, wow. um, or suicide, um, or that you might need higher doses of a certain medication in order to make it work effectively. So they have like mm. a green column, like a go column. These are the ones that are going to be most appropriate. Then we have some that might be therapeutically beneficial, but there may be some additional side effects. And then there's the ones that it's not even worth trying 
these, they're not going to be effective. So in doing something like this, it provides practitioners the ability to prescribe already knowing what's not going to work Holy. or what's not going to be effective, which significantly <clears throat> minimizes the number of people. That's crazy. How, how is, it, is, it not, is it not wild that we've been having these conversations for six years? Yeah. And like, I mean, hey, you know, time. like we're, we're, we're a couple knuckleheads. Like it's <laughs> not like we, it's not like we know a ton about this stuff in the first place, but the fact that we've been cultivating these conversations for six years, something like this is something I've never heard of. And yeah. it sounds so, so well, vitally important. How widely implemented is it? It should be used every time. It should be used every, <laughs> every time. So I got a, a phone call from like a dude from um, Dynacare sort of like peddling this. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, so I, of course, I, the first thing I did was I did it myself. <laughs> made the most sense to me. I want to know if the medication that I'm taking is appropriate for me and whether or not there needs to be any adjustments. Um, and then it was something I started advocating for at Greenstone. And as people were coming in who had had a lot of medication changes in the past or who were newly diagnosed with mental health issues, I'm like, this would be a great way to help to minimize, you know, the, the risks associated with somebody not being successful on a medication regimen. Yeah. Um, and we have, and it, there's a cost associated <coughs> with it, unfortunately. Um, and we do have people who come in who, um, are covered by somebody, somebody is funding their way for them so that, that there isn't additional monies. Um, so what we've been able to do is we've actually been able to change it so that it's included in our tuition. So anybody who comes in hmm. who wants to have this genome testing done, or if it's recommended by the psychiatrist that it can be done um, without um, having to worry about the costs associated with it, hmm. which is absolutely phenomenal. And that's something we've just been able to do recently. Just, when, just when you, to, just one second, Brian, just to cover all the bases is, are there any naysayers on the efficacy of it? Like, are, are, are there anybody that's yeah. a, is, are there people saying that doesn't work the way that you want it to, or hope it does sort of thing with the gene, with the gene testing, like how accurate it is? Um, yeah, it's, it's accurate, accurate enough in the sense that it's not going to tell you what the side effects are but it's going to tell you if there's an increased risk yeah, for okay. side effects. Okay. Did you right. learn anything so, about yourself when you took it? Like when you took it, were you like, did. whoa, yeah. I didn't know that. Or, ah, that makes a lot oh of sense. Oh my God. So yeah. um, uh, part of my story that I haven't gotten into yet is I didn't start using opiates until after I stopped consuming alcohol. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, so, I, so I relapsed, and I, but I, when I relapsed, I relapsed with opiates. Because um, then people wouldn't know I was using, right? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you froze there. You froze yeah. there mid laugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it, it turns out actually that I am a low responder to opiates. Um, oh. And I require significantly increased doses to get the same therapeutic effects, which means when I started using, I started using heavier and harder than other people would have because I needed to take more in order to get the same effect. And is that which more is dangerous? Super interesting. Is that, is that typically more dangerous for someone? Like, like the fact that you need to start with the higher doses, does that make it, does that put you more at risk to, you know, find yourself in a, in a really, really unfortunate position where like maybe your, your, your breathing stops or yeah. something like that? Well, I don't think so. Mostly just because when I started using, I started using slow, right? Most people don't mm. start using and start using doses that are, you know, enough or high enough, uh, you know, typically, um, you know, people have the experience of getting high and then they're constantly chasing that feeling. And as, as 
they become desensitized to the medication, then there's this constant need to take more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And then that's where you end up with those, those risks. Um, The other risk is for people when they experience relapse um, is a lot of times people will go through a period uh, where they've gone through withdrawal and then they don't use for a significant period of time. But then if they go back and use the same amount that they used previously mm-hmm. their bodies are not capable of handling mm-hmm. that so this is where we see some of this sort of part of the epidemic of these overdoses is that sometimes you have people who have these clean times but when mm-hmm. they go back out and use again there's significantly higher risk for uh, overdose Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Can, can I ask? I, I'm I'm really curious about the the moment in someone's life, like when they decide to try for the first time, like an opiate, for example. And so, like when you came out of recovery, and you, I, I I imagine that you were doing well for a certain amount of time until you weren't again. But like, how do you like what what sort of process or happens in your mind mind that ends up in a situation where you are then using opiates or, or, or was it from a prescription for something? It absolutely was not. (laughs) (laughs) So I am, I am not one of those people who was going to tell you that I was prescribed opiates and became addicted. I used Mm. opiates because I am an addict and I was looking to get high. Mm. Um, so my, my story is, um, so I stopped drinking. I started going to AA, um, and I connected with people there and I started working with a sponsor and my sponsor suggested that I might have a drug problem. And what I was doing is I was smoking cannabis. Um, and they said, you know, part of, of doing the 12 steps is that, you know, there's the need to have a spiritual experience. And I'm not sure if you're going to be able to do that if you're still using drugs. So, you know, can you stop? And I said, sure, I can stop. And I, and I stopped using um, I said, how long? And, uh, and they said three months. And I said, okay. So I stopped using for three months. And then I said, see, I, I have total control over this. It's not a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was, and then it was on a Friday night and then it was, and then it was every weekend. And then it started bleeding back into the week. And then within the year I was back to a place where I was using every day. Um, and so then it was like, okay, maybe I'm powerless over this. Maybe this is a problem. And so I stopped using the cannabis and I went 18 months uh, clean from the alcohol and the cannabis before I relapsed with the opiates. And I was in a, having a really hard time. Um, I was not getting the appropriate support or maybe even not even aware of the support that I needed in the balance mm. that I needed still at that point in my life. Um, and I knew that I wanted to choose. And I knew that if I smoked pot, that everybody would know that I'd relapsed. And I've always been very, very transparent about the fact that I'm a person in recovery. You know, I don't consume alcohol. It was, um, you know, in my workplace, there was a very common understanding about the fact that I identified as a person in recovery. And there was so much shame associated with 
I'm not managing, I'm going to do this thing, and I don't want people to know. Uh, so I figured what people don't know won't hurt them. And, and, and I picked up the opiates because I could use them and people would not know I was using. Mm. Um, and that's, that was, that was, you know, that was the purpose for me when, when I, when I looked to get that, this is a safe, um, of course I say safe drug. Um, you know, this is something that's safe for me, um, because, you know, in my upbringing, um, you know, part of the thing is about safety, you know, it's about safety of what you're consuming, where you're consuming, you know, I've never bought drugs off the street. Um, you know, everybody's got, you know, lines in the sand, which of course end up getting, you know, pushed past. But one of them for me is that, um, I need to know that what I'm getting is safe. Um, mm. and opiates was an easy way to do that. Um, mm. you know, whereas, you know, buying other things on the street or getting access to other things can be really dangerous and you don't know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Are you getting them from like somebody who has been prescribed them as a pres- prescription? Mm-hmm. You're getting like yeah, yeah. So I had yeah, I had a I had a, um, a girlfriend who um, had had back surgery, and she never used she never used them. Um, and so you know, one day it was like, hey, you know, do you mind if I take one? Do you mind if I and do you mind if I do you mind if I, um, you know? And then just you know, got to a place where every time I was showing up at her house, I was you know, going through the bathroom, going through her purse, you know, mm. pulling drugs and taking drugs. And, and at that I, point, it's like, you know, once, <laughs> once the, uh, once the fountain runs dry there, um, you know, the, like you were saying, those lines that you draw in the sand, yeah. it, it, they get you kicked, know, kicked yeah, over. where do you go? Where do you go after that? You know, once, once she runs out, like, and, and that, that, that definitely is, you know, I, I, I think we, we all know people who have yeah. been in that position where, and it goes downhill pretty fucking quick, you know? And, and I, I, I don't know what the stats are in Canada, but the reason that I wanted to tag that onto the end of that question there, Brian, about, about how you came to uh, like relapse into opioids and ask about whether it was a prescription is because I was doing this, I was doing this uh, kind of deep dive into opioid, uh, opioid overdoses. Um, and a lot of the statistics that I was getting were coming out of the States. And it was something like, 79 or 82 percent somewhere in that region of uh overdoses were people who had who had come to who had come to what whatever whatever substance they were using when they died they they came to that addiction through a prescription for their for a problem for a you know whatever a surgery or whatever the case whatever it was for um is that it does that sort of um heavy overload on on the prescription side of things, do, do you feel like that whole is the similar in Canada? Like that, a lot of it is coming through that. A lot of people are 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 starting their their path with opioids through that um, through that gateway. I think that's true for some. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that that's true for everybody. Um, I believe it was like 2003, 2004, 2005, um, where we sort of started having this very, very serious issue with overprescribing. And this is when um, Oxycontin was available. um, And, you know, we had pill mills running. And for a lot of people, that was sort of an early start to that. And for some people, that's sort of been what has trickled over. Um, I definitely agree that there's overprescribing happening. And, and I don't think that it's done maliciously, but I think that there's still a significant lack of understanding around addiction hmm. um, and, you know, how that uh, can be a, a trigger because not everybody who takes opiates is, is an addict or is going to be an addict. Um, however, anybody who's um, predispositioned to that 
this can create a triggering event for them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. In which case there's an inability almost from the very beginning for the body to appropriately process and move through mm-hmm. and you move into yeah. that addiction zone very, very quickly. Well, I, I share, I've shared the story on the podcast before, but, but I got hit by a car a couple of years ago and I was prescribed allotted, um, in, in mm-hmm. hospital. And then, and then, mm-hmm. and then when I left as well, and when I, uh, when I finished that prescription, I went through, you know, like 48 hours of hell and nobody, not, the pharmacist, no doctor, said, Hey, this is what you're going to experience. Or maybe you should, you should be weaning in this, Mm. in this strategy, in this structure in order to avoid the hellish symptoms that I was going through and, and had the wherewithal to go, wow, if I, if, if my brain was different, yeah, I'd never not do these. Mm-hmm. I would never, mm-hmm. I would never not do them. I would just do them for the rest no. of my life to avoid That's this, right. this hell. Of course. And, yeah. it, and it, it really, it really did blow me away. Cause that was really my first experience with, you know, with, with, op- with strong opioids. And I, and I was really, really shocked at how little information I was yeah. given um, by professionals who are, who, uh, you know, and again, it's like, it's a, I don't think it's an individual problem. It's, I don't think it's the pharmacist's fault. I don't think it's the doctor's fault. I think it's just a collective. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's just a breakdown in the system as a whole as to how that stuff is, is explained and organized to to that point then. And, and, and to kind of come back to a few things that you've, you've mentioned, Naomi, uh, like I, I would like to talk about, um, finding the appropriate care and like, and, and, you know, and things like barriers to access when it comes to support for, um, addictions. Um, what, you know, if someone's listening right now and they themselves feel like, you know, a light bulb has gone off and they're going, Oh shit. Like, I don't even need to look back in retrospect. I'm, I'm noticing now that maybe I have a, a problem or, or, uh, they're noticing that, you know, someone close to them is possibly struggling as an allergy. Yeah. Has, <laughs> yeah, has an allergy of sorts. Um, what, like, what are your, what are your thoughts when it comes to seeking access to support and, and care? And like, what are, what are like the, what are the key steps that people uh, should be focusing on when it, when it comes to trying to find the right type of support? Wow. Such a big question. In five um, words or less, please. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so I, I have huge, um, I have had and continue to have huge challenges with getting access to appropriate services. Um, I am not a quiet person. Um, I am a very loud, very um, outgoing person. Uh, style of person. Um, I'm a fabulous advocate for myself and for others. And it's wildly disappointing that when I'm capable of doing those things, it's part of the strength that I experience in my life. That I think about the people who are out there dying because they're not capable of advocating for themselves. Um, And that's really frustrating. Um, I had initially many, 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 many challenges in getting the supports set up that I have in place uh, currently uh, to sort of go over what that looks like. Um, I attend uh, 12-step meetings at least twice a week. Um, I attend a caduceus, which is a healthcare professional's recovery meeting every other week. 
Um, I was seeing a psychiatrist monthly, which now happens once every three months. I see an addiction physician once a month, um, and I do a concurrent disorders group uh, once a week. I drug test every week, um, like my, and I work in a recovery center. So, like my recovery regimen is is very significant, um, but it took almost a year to be able to get all of those things in place, and I hit boundaries and walls. Everywhere I went, I ended up having to write a letter to um, my MP, who then sent something forward to um, the health minister, you know, in regards to the lack of access to services, you know, still today, I'm in a place where I'm advocating my concurrent disorders group um, has been shut down, and there hasn't been an alternative set in place. Um, I haven't been able to get anybody to return my phone calls or my emails in regards to why this has happened and how there's been a void left for, you know, people. My whole entire recovery regimen was originally built around my concurrent disorders program because it happened on a Wednesday morning and I stopped working Wednesdays and it became a self-care day. It became a recovery day. It became the day that I checked in with my doctors. It became the day that I had my appointments. It became the day that I could meet with my sponsor, that I could do my groups that I could put that time aside and, and now, now it's not happening. And so my routine um, in its entirety sort of has become ruffled. Um, so for somebody like me, who's in a place to continue to be able to advocate and to speak for myself about these types of systems, um, you know, what's, what's happening for the people who can't advocate for themselves. Mm. I, I think there's a lack of understanding that part of mental health and addiction is the fact that standard ADLs, or, or activities of daily living can be a challenge. Organization showing up to doctor's appointments. You know, I, I know my doctor's office, they put a sign up that says 132 people missed their appointments last month. And it's like, okay, so did somebody call them that morning? Did mm. somebody make sure that they had transportation? You know, were any of these things done? Because people with addictions and mental health need to have their hands held. The whole mm. point is part of the disease or the disorder is the inability to appropriately function. Mm -hmm. in common society with the expectations of, of how you're supposed to function as an adult. Um, you know, so case management would be something that would be phenomenal um, in our country that when somebody reached out with an identification of a mental health or addiction issue, that they were provided case management and there was somebody to advocate for them to help them get all of the services they need in place. You don't know what services you need. You don't know what totally. services are available. You can't mm. even identify that the fact that the way that you're thinking is a distortion, mm -hmm. right? So to expect people to be proactive about some of these things can be very, very, very challenging. Mm. Um, but when, when, when you have somebody who's there to support you through it, who's had that experience to sort of take you along, um, it makes it a lot easier. Um, when, um, when, this is this is you, you. I think you kind of sort of answered this this question in the last little bit of your uh, of what you were just saying. But um, and and I don't want to get too. I don't want to get really off of this topic of the barriers to access because I think that we should probably stay on that. But um, when you when when somebody establishes like you like you you seem to have established this like really robust like cur curriculum uh, of 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 yeah. things to to make sure that you are on the path to stay to stay away from, um, the things that, uh, opioids and alcohol. Um, what would, what, what would you say to the person that builds that routine, builds that really robust, uh, structure in order to stay in, to stay, uh, um, 
a clean or whatever the word you want to use. And then they start to feel like they can reduce that because they're doing so well. Mm. So a couple of things. Um, initially I tell people you need to be willing to put as much time into your recovery as you were willing to put into your addiction. So if you spent four Mm. hours a day getting, finding and using drugs, Mm. you need to be putting four hours a day into your recovery. Um, so that's the first thing I tell people because a lot of people say it's a lot of time to have to commit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. the, the second thing that I tell people is that anything that you're willing to put in front of your recovery, you need to be willing to lose. So the second that my family becomes a priority over my recovery, I need to understand that there's a risk that that I will lose them. If I put my job before my recovery, I need to understand that there's a risk that I'm going to lose it. Mm. Um, And it's through my experience and having done all of the things that I've done that I've come to a place where I understand this. Um, Just so there's a bit of an understanding around timeline, I have not consumed alcohol for more than 10 years. So I've been in a place where there's been an understanding about the need of recovery and building a recovery regimen for more than 10 years. I have four and a half years of clean time. Mm. Uh, One thing that just sort of popped into my mind here in, in talking about like the things that people should be considering when they themselves feel like perhaps they they're, they're staring, you know, staring in the face of an issue um, and, and Naomi, I don't, I don't know if this is something that you can speak to personally or not, but I'm sure you have something to say about, um, you know, we were just talking about like, like barriers to access when it comes to finding care, but I can imagine, um, that there's, there's also, there's, there's, there's probably for a lot of people like a, a personal barrier to seeking support based on the shame that, that surrounds an addiction, so, you know, someone, someone um, is admitting to themselves, but not to anybody else that they have a problem, but the shame is so strong that they have like, whatever it is in their mind failed or they've fucked up or, you know, the, the self-hatred surrounding the fact that they've slipped and they're, they're going down this path. Um, wh- what can you say to people who might be struggling with that aspect of like taking the steps to find the care? but feeling unable to because they're, they're just so ashamed at themselves for, for, you know, finding themselves in this position. Uh, I would say go to a meeting, um, an anonymous meeting, a 12 step meeting of any sort. Um, I don't honestly think that it matters. Um, They're all the same 12 steps, regardless of where you go and what the fellowship is. But going into a room with other people who are going to be able to identify with that shame, um, with people who are going to be able to tell stories that are worse than yours, (laughs) who having done things um, where you no longer feel alone in the experience Um, I think is a big part of it because once there's an understanding that there's other people like you out there, it helps to remove some of the shame associated with, I can't do this. Mm. When you go somewhere Mm. like that and there's other like-minded people and they say, I couldn't do it on my own either. Nobody can. It's okay. Mm. Um, it, It starts to remove some of the stigma associated with it. 
Mm. Um, for a lot of people, when they identify with addiction and mental health, it can be very tunnel vision. It's like, I'm the only one experiencing this. Nobody understands if they felt the way that I felt, if they had my life, they would use too, and those types of things. And when you go into those meetings, you meet people who have had similar experiences. They have been to the bottom. They have crossed those lines in the sand that they said they never would, and they've recovered. Mm -hmm. And so it provides an opportunity of hope, this hearing other people's experiences. This is hope, hearing mm -hmm. other people's experiences. In, in terms of the the other barriers to care that you're talking about, when you put the, you put them so eloquently, like I, so my uncle who's uh, recently passed away, he was addicted to Oxycontin and um, struggled with uh, homelessness for a number of years and um, was dyslexic and couldn't really read or write that well. And so for him to access any s sort of social services, he wasn't able to because he couldn't fill out forms. He didn't know who to go to. So talking about like having a case manager um, really, really struck a chord with me because I think it's, it's incredibly important. Um, I'm curious though, to, to come back to your story of, of the, um, opioid addiction, at what point did that reach a point for you where you either knew you had to find help or somebody um, mentioned to you that you needed to get help? Like, how did you first realize um, during the opioid addiction that it was something that was uh, a, pr a problem? Um, I think when I tried to stop. Um, so it was... I was, I continued to go meet, to meetings. Like I, even, even during my use, I was going to my meetings twice a week. I was mm. still doing my concurrent group. Um, I didn't have the addiction physician and the psychiatrist and the, the caduceus group at that time, but I was still doing other things. Um, and I knew that I needed to stop because I, I knew that I was falling into this cycle of addiction. Um, mm. And I tried to stop and I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's when I think that I had the biggest awareness of the fact that I had to stop because I couldn't, right. <laughs> yeah. I knew yeah. I had to. Um, and so I actually, I told work that I was experiencing pause, which is post-acute withdrawal, um, which can happen, you know, many, many months, um, and sometimes even years after somebody has become sober, <laughs> Um, and that I needed to go to treatment because I was afraid that I was going to relapse. Um, mm. so I left work, um, took a leave of absence and I called, I think it's connects, which is um, an Ontario connection line to get access to services and got on the wait list for treatment beds and was fortunate enough to get into a bed three weeks later. Wow. Uh, so I went so I, I was going to ask, like, what, like, having those types of conversations, so, like, with your work, and I'm imagining with your partner, too, um, have you, have you always been good at having those conversations? Or do you find those really difficult to, to, to open up to them and, and let them know that you need help in those moments? Well, those were lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so, I guess pause so it wasn't was a really lie, yeah. opening up right it's like yeah. I'm not using but I'm afraid I might so I need to go right. to treatment right? Right. So, right. so I didn't tell anybody yeah. I was using nobody nobody knew I was using opiate it was not a conversation I had with anybody my, mm. I didn't talk to my partner about it I didn't talk to my work about it I didn't talk to my recovery group about it everybody thought I was clean mm. 
right? So, you know, and that can be part of the challenge is that addiction and mental health, part of that is fueled by manipulation. I am a master manipulator and I'm quite capable of doing that. So I can tell people what they want to hear and they're going to believe me. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm capable of doing it. I've been doing it for years. I'm capable of camouflaging. I'm capable of being a chameleon. I'm capable of blending into the environment around me, right? Mm. Um, so it wasn't hard to have that conversation, but I wasn't being truthful yet either. Mm, right. So for a, a lot of times I've got half truths. Um, you know, it's like that, you know, the, the test, it's like the foot out the door. What are people's responses going to be to this? How challenging is it going to be? And then later on down the line, six months, eight months, a year, 18 yeah. months, <laughs> these things come up. And then I'm in a place to be able to be honest about what was actually happening. And in my recovery, the further I've been able to move in my recovery, the less I have had to be dishonest because the more truthful I am, the more transparent I can be. And the more I do that, the less shame there is. And the less shame there is, there's less fear there is about telling your story and about being straightforward. Mm -hmm. You know, I can talk to you guys about a lot of the shitty things that I've done now because I'm past it. I've healed past it while I was in it. I would not have been straightforward about Mm -hmm. it. Do do you feel like those half truths over time, specifically like with your partner, do you feel like it took a toll on your relationship and you had to build up after that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When I, when I got sober, um, I, I was, uh, I called, I was, I had spent five days, um, in a mental hospital and I called and I said, I'm coming home. And she said to me, no, you're not get your shit together. Um, and we separated and we lived separately for, for three months and we started Mm -hmm. couples counseling. I had to earn the trust, um, you know, to, to be able to come back into the house to be able to start doing those things. And then we started rebuilding a trusting relationship Mm. from there on. But for me personally, it's very, very challenging to bring up these things that I did that I didn't do intentionally to hurt people. I did so that I wouldn't be hurting. And then there's the shame associated with those things and trying to explain to people that while I was in that, it wasn't that I was trying to hurt you. Um, And I'm sorry that that's what the repercussion has been. For myself, I certainly cannot apologize for all the things. My my wife is absolutely phenomenal. 22 years she's been with me. She's lived with me through all of the insanity of of my addiction and my recovery and my mental health challenges. You know, and, and to be in a place where it's my responsibility to have a living amends. I can't change the things that I did to her, but I can change the way that I behave so that I won't do those things going forward. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I've had to concentrate on. And instead of using words to say, I'm sorry, I have to use my actions. I have to continue to behave in a way that shows that I'm sorry for having done those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's very important to me with my wife and with my children, right? I raised two children um, in active addiction as well, right? So there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that as well. You know, when my kids have struggles, my kids have challenges, I need to remember the exposure that they've had to me and how unhealthy that has been for them. And I can't change that. But what I can do is I can take my recovery and I can carry it into their lives and I can teach them the things I know now. I think um, something that, something that, um, that like, I think you just continued to like reinforce over the past few minutes of speaking and something that um, when you were talking about like how people feel when they can go to a meeting and see that there are people that are having a similar experience and that you're not alone and that you are 
that 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 you're not this you're not in this isolated experience that you think that you are um and there are people out there that are that are struggling as well and that that can be really helpful it really reminded me just of like all of the conversations that we've had over the years with people of who have who have dealt with illnesses across the whole spectrum of physical and mental illnesses and i think that as a society we have we've 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 come a long way in the understanding that addiction is a mental health issue um and that that, that it is a that it is an illness that we should try to understand more and more and be able to treat and um and help with better but it i think it still carries it still carries a unique stigma Absolutely. of yeah. of like personal judgment mm-hmm. and and hearing everything that you kind of just said like really reinforced to me although i already know it especially in theory but it, it kind of i think you kind of reinforce that in practice about just 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 that it is like so many illnesses yeah. in the sense that almost everybody that we've spoken to across the, the spectrum of illness has told us a similar story of i felt so alone i felt like i was the only one having this experience like jer has felt isolated with cf so and so has had felt isolated in their cancer experience and then i went to this thing or i had this conversation or i found this group and i realized i wasn't alone and that was what and that was a huge help in allowing me to get better if not physically from the physical illness to grasp it and cope with it in a in a healthier way mm-hmm. um and i just that was like coming up for me over and over again as you were kind of responding to the last few questions mm-hmm. Uh, Naomi, I, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for, for not only for, um, showing up here today and, and giving us a little bit of insight from like the, the clinical side of things when it comes to addiction. Um, but also thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your own personal experience with, uh, us and, and our listeners. Um, you know, I think this, this is one of those conversations that we tend to have every so often that just like feels really really important. And, uh, I think there were a lot of pieces that came up just sort of what you were saying there, Taylor, like a lot of pieces that came up there, like a really healthy and like valuable reminder of like the ways that we need to be looking at things like addictions and, and, and how to approach that going forward. Um, so, so for that, thank you. Secondly, um, I know that, uh, Greenstone, um, has a lot of really helpful resources. Uh, and, and I also know that we have a lot of listeners in Ontario. So if people are curious about Greenstone and, and the, the, you know, the center for recovery, um, wh- where can they go to find Greenstone and, uh, and get more information if that's something that they, they are looking for? Um, so you can go to our website, um, which is, uh, I believe, www.greenstone.net. Greenstone is G-R-E-E-N-E-S-T-O-N-E. Um, there's an extra E in there. always throws people off. Um, and Ontario Connects is a, a great place to be able to access uh, resources as well. But, you know, certainly feel free to, you know, to come to check out the, the website. Um, you know, we take a very, very holistic approach, you know, um, addiction recovery is not just about stopping using it's about creating a new life Mm. um, and creating a new balance and and what are what are the pieces that need to be plugged in um in order to be able to sustain that Mm. and so a a lot of my experience has shown me 
the things that I've needed to have. And so trying to more appropriately incorporate those um, into Greenstone and into the, the work that we're able to offer to people. You know, I'm here in this job doing what it is that I do because my hope is that not everybody's going to have to go through the experience that I went through to have to recover, to have to get access to services. You know, I want to be a part of the change. So maybe it's not as hard for the next person who's looking to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, that, again, Naomi, this has been so, so wonderful. It's been a pleasure to meet you and uh, really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.